So that was the first time that I have seen the name Katie Pollock on the screen. It used to be Smith just a few weeks ago. Now it's Pollock. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Yay, newlyweds. Aren't newlyweds so fun and innocent? And those of us that have been in this game for a while, we kind of look at them and go, oh, they just have no idea, do they? Yeah. And I'm sure what we mean by that is they have no idea how awesome marriage can be. But usually what we're thinking is they have no idea how hard marriage can be, right? Anything that has potential to be really awesome in your life is probably really difficult, right? If you think about the things that you're most proud of in your life, maybe your greatest celebrations were things that came at the expense of a lot of hard work, right? And so that's what we're going to dive into today as we talk about marriage and how marriage is just an incredible gift. It, it's, it's a way to experience a relationship that is so similar to what God really wants for us, um, between us and Him, and so much joy and possibility and productivity and legacy, but it's really hard. So uh, let me back up a minute. A couple weeks ago, we started to talk about the concept of greater love and that we as followers of Jesus who are united in this church family, we, we have this mission to invite people to this life with Jesus that we think we were all created to experience. And as we do that, we, we teach people to obey Christ, we baptize into Christ, and we count on Jesus to lead us every step of the way. But we also believe that there are some unique um, gifts, experiences, opportunities for our church family to meet needs in our community. So we ask the question, what are some of the greatest needs in our community, and how are we uniquely positioned to meet those needs? And so one of the things that we've noticed when we talk to teachers and school administrators and um, law enforcement and nonprofits, a couple things that come up consistently in those conversations about needs in our community are marriages and parenting. What happens in the home has such a huge impact on everything that happens outside of the home. You've seen that. You know that. You've experienced things with people where you thought, why his mama didn't raise him right, right? You've had those thoughts about, about things like that, or I wonder if their parents are okay. And this what happens in the home is so central to our community, to the health of a church family and to the health of a community. And we believe that we are uniquely positioned and resourced and gifted to address those needs in our community right now. So we have this vision, this, this Cicero Christian church that could be and should be and will be down the road where we see Jesus-centered families building a community of greater love. Jesus-centered families building a community of greater love. Last week, we talked about what greater love really means, that greater love um, that we experience from God, that we um, offer to God, and then that we demonstrate to other people. It's just a different kind of love than if you take God out of that equation. And so we want to build a community where we are characterized by the kind of love that God shows to us, the kind of love that Jesus modeled for us in his time here on earth. That's the greater love that we're, we're striving for. And so today we want to talk about the first part of what it means to be a Jesus-centered family, and that's going to be thriving marriages, thriving marriages. Would you describe your marriage as thriving, thriving? If anybody just asked you, just kind of pulled you aside after, you know, worship and said, hey, how are you guys doing? How would you respond? Would it be like, oh, we're doing okay. We're getting by. We're making it. 
We're making it. I think a lot of us, that's kind of your response. How many of you stood in front of a, a pastor on your wedding day and looked at each other and said, I hope one day we can say, we're making it. I hope one day our testimony to the people around us is, we're surviving, we're getting by. No, you, you stood there in front of somebody and you looked at each other and God was invited and you said, you and me together, babe, it's us and it's going to be awesome. It's gonna, the things that lay ahead of us, we're, we're going to have kids, we're going we're gonna to work together and build this incredible little family and we're going to be a blessing to, our, our, to each other and to the people around us and we're going to leave this legacy that our kids look at our marriage and go, I want a marriage like that and our grandkids look at our marriage and go, I want a marriage like that and that's what you're thinking when you're standing there at the altar. And yet here we are, and those of us that have made it so far just kind of go, yeah, we're, we're making it. You think that's what God had in mind when he set up this whole marriage thing? I hope they get together, and man, I hope they just, I hope they make it. I hope they survive. No, I think God had in mind that he wanted us to thrive in the marriage relationship. And yet we, we see so, so many people who, first of all, maybe don't make it, and so many people who are just, just surviving and not experiencing a thriving marriage that is a blessing to both partners and is a blessing to the people around them, to their kids, their grandkids, their neighbors, their in-laws. Is your messing marriage a blessing to your in-laws? That's what a thriving marriage can be. You're like, that's, that's possible? That can happen? Of course it can. That's what God intended. And yet, somehow we settle. We seem to settle for just making it because... It seems so hard just to make it. It seems like ground, ground zero, just, just surviving seems so difficult that if I can just survive, I should be happy with that. When all the time God has offered us something so much higher, so much greater than just surviving. So why is it so hard? And how do we get there? Well, I, I think one of the elements that has been missing from a lot of conversation about marriage is the covenant before God part, the covenant before God. A lot of times, we just kind of see it as a legal contract. The marriage means we can pool our resources, we can file as married on our taxes, you know, and there's some name changes that happen, and our kids get to have the same name, and like, it's a legal contract that has legal ramifications, and maybe we forget, maybe we leave out or neglect to, to really think about the covenant before God part of marriage. Let me say... Um, before we get too far into this, that I know not everyone in here is married. And what I want to say to you is maybe you've been married and now you're single or you hope to get married someday. I know we have some engaged couples in the house, excited for you guys, is that you have a chance to contribute to thriving marriages in our church and in our community. Just because you're single doesn't mean that you're out of this conversation. Because every single person in this room you have friends and loved ones who are married that you, you care about and you want to see their marriages thrive and you have a little influence with them. And so how can you use your influence to help build thriving marriages for the people that you love? I absolutely believe that you can. And so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But we need to start at the beginning, at the beginning. Genesis chapter two is where we find the first couple who have agreed to enter into a lifelong partnership and let's, let's see how this gets set up. So Genesis 2, we're going to start in verse 18 and read through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, what? One flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That last verse has nothing to do with our conversation. I just like to throw it in. <laughs> this, this phrase right here at the end, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is called marriage math. It's not like regular math. In regular math, one plus one equals? Very, you guys are so sharp. In marriage math, one plus one equals? One. One. Yeah, yeah. One plus one equals one. This is something special that is happening when two people come together, commit to a lifelong relationship in a covenant before God. A covenant before God. And so this is how God kind of set it up to work. You and me together, babe, forever. So why is this so hard? Why do we look around and see so many marriages that don't make it? There's some good news. Um, Did you know that the divorce rate in the U.S. has been declining for over 20 years now? The divorce rate has been dropping. That's really good, isn't it? Positive. The sort of downside, the other side of that coin is the reason why divorce rates are dropping is that marriage rates are dropping even more. Fewer marriages equals fewer divorces, right? So it's like there's this generation that has come along and looked at this marriage divorce situation and thought, "Mm." imagine walking through the grocery store and you see a product on the shelf labeled marriage and you pull that box down and you read the front cover and the line, the advertising line says, 50% of customers are satisfied with this product. What do you do? You just kind of put that back on the shelf and say, "Eh, 50%, that's a coin toss. Like, am I willing to roll the dice on something like this? And so a lot of, a lot of people are just saying, no, I'm out. I'm not rolling the dice on that. We, we would often look at, you know, my generation and older would look at cohabitation as, you know, reckless and rebellious. But most people that are choosing cohabitation now see it as the safer bet. Cohabitation is up 30% in the last 10 years. Because people have just said, if it's that difficult and so many of them end in divorce, why roll the dice? That's a good question, isn't it? Why roll the dice? We have some engaged couples who are on the edge of their seat going, why roll the dice? What are we doing? Because a marriage before God, two people who have come together and made a lifelong commitment before God, is capable of something extraordinary in the world. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. When you think about those of you that that grew up in a home where your parents had a good marriage 
and what the legacy that that left for you. And maybe it was grandparents. Maybe you have somebody in your life that you look to and you go, man, it's, it's their relationship that gives me hope. It's their relationship that gives me confidence that this can work, that this can be beautiful, that a marriage can be something that doesn't just survive but actually thrives and is a blessing to both people and leaves a legacy for those who, who come after. A marriage before God, it's, it's capable of extraordinary things in the world, bringing good into the world in a very unique and powerful way. But it starts with a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one. Let's read some words of Jesus on this subject. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus was being questioned about divorce because at the time, believe it or not, divorce was rampant among the Jewish community in the first century. just happened all the time. Because they had this law on the books that said, well, since, you know, men are kind of in charge of everything around here, if a man decides that he wants to divorce his wife, all he has to do is give her a certificate of divorce. He can send her on her way with nothing. It was that simple. So imagine waking up one morning, ladies, and, and your, your guy says, you know, the lasagna was a little crispy on the bottom last night, so um, see ya on your way. That's, that, that was legal, and so they bring this question to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus is going to point back to the very beginning. See if any of this sounds familiar. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You've heard that phrase before? You've probably heard that in a wedding ceremony. Do you know that? Those are the words of Jesus. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Because when, when one plus one equals one, and then you try to separate that one into two again, something gets broken. Something gets damaged. I know many of you have experienced divorce, either firsthand or your parents or someone that you love. And you know the truth of this. When you take those two that have become one and you try to make them two again, something gets broken. There are wounds. Wounds that can absolutely be healed. But they leave scars. Because one plus one equals one, and it's difficult to separate them again. Miss uh, Jane Shields, Spanish teacher, she always reads along with us in Spanish, in her Spanish Bible, and she loves to teach me Spanish after the first service. So she came to me this morning and she said, hey, you know that verb when it says the two become one? In Spanish, that verb is something. I don't know what she said. It was a different language. But she said, it's the word for melt. It's the Spanish word for melt. It's the French word fondue. You know what fondue is? Isn't that neat? That what the, the Spanish translation says is that when, when he and she come together, they melt into each other. And then how do you separate that into two again without causing some damage? There's your uh, linguistic uh, challenge for today. Enjoy.
There are a lot of reasons why people want to separate the one into two again. Some of the most common reasons uh, that have been, it's been like this for decades in our country are incompatibility is number one, where people have just decided, uh, I don't think we love each other anymore. I don't think we fit together anymore. Things have changed. He changed. She changed. I've changed. Incompatibility. Number two is infidelity. Just, he cheated. She cheated. And number three is money. Debt issues or financial infidelity where somebody is keeping secrets about what they're doing with the money. Those are the three most common things where people just kind of say, all right, I know we're one, but we're going we're gonna to break it off and we're going to go back to being two again. And I wonder, I wonder why it's so hard to overcome these obstacles. They're real obstacles. This idea of, I, I don't know if I feel the way I used to feel about you or I'm not sure that you're faithful, or I'm not sure that, that you are the partner that's going to help me reach my financial goals or live the way I want to financially. Those are difficult to overcome, but why, why does it seem so rare to find marriages that face those issues and yet not just make it, but thrive? Let's read some words from Paul. Paul is an apostle who... who spread the gospel all over the world, and he started a bunch of churches, and uh, he writes about marriage as well. In Ephesians chapter 5, let's read this. Ephesians 5, 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, does this sound familiar? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Third time we've heard that verse, isn't it? If your teacher says something to you three times, or your mom or your dad says something to you three times, or your spouse says something to you three times, what are you, what are you supposed to pick up from that? This is really important. Would you please listen to this? Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one. The two become one. And I wonder if sometimes what we're afraid of is sort of maybe losing a sense of identity if... if if, if it's two becoming one, then can I still, am I still me? Can I still be myself and, and live, live out the life that I think I was created to live? Or am I just like half of this other person now and, and I have to give up my identity? Well, I think when you, when you look through Scripture and you see what God has called both men and women to in, in His kingdom, you recognize, yeah, we absolutely have an identity in Christ that we get to live out. But what happens when two become one is that it's actually an exponential product of our gifts and our abilities, that we are able to support and, and urge each other, encourage each other along in using our gifts for the kingdom of God in a way that's, that's unique and that's very special and brings joy to each other and joy to the people around you. A marriage before God, a covenant before God between two people is... Is special. So what is it that really actually holds two people together? 
I think we try a lot of things. I'm going to try to use some objects here to demonstrate some things. So this is, this is him and this is her. And, and they're, they're okay on their own. If, if you're single, you need, you need to know this for sure. You are whole and valuable to God as a single person. You don't have to be married. You're not more valuable to God when you're married than when you're single. Single people are whole and valuable to God and gifted for service in the kingdom just like they are. But when two people decide to join together and are looking for things to hold them together, like what is going to be the thing that keeps us together? It's not a conscious conversation that you have. It's just something that happens sometimes. And sometimes it becomes an external thing. This thing that we both externally are a part of, like duct tape, is going to hold us together. Oftentimes, it's, it's the kids. We're, we're in this to raise great kids. And we're just going to be kind of a kid-centered family, a kid-centered family, because we want to raise great kids. I mean, there, there sounds like some good there, doesn't it? But what happens when the kids move out? What happens when that external thing that you've counted on to hold you together is no longer there? There's not, there's not much left to hold you together. And it's really hard to stay together if you started out with a kid-centered marriage. That's going to happen. Just don't worry about it. I was talking with a couple last week. Um, who uh, their kids have all grown and are out of the house. And she was telling me this story about when her oldest daughter went to college. And um, somewhere in that first year of college, the daughter called home and said, Mom, how are you guys doing, you and Dad? She said, oh, we're, we're doing fine. We're doing well. And I'm like, how's your marriage? Are you guys, you guys doing good? She's like, yeah, we're, we're doing good. She's like, Mom, are you guys going to get divorced? And she's like, what? No, we're, we're doing well. Why are you asking me this? And she said, all my friends are telling me that their parents are, are splitting up, that now that the kids are out of the house, the parents are all splitting up. And I just want to make sure that you guys are okay. Why would that happen? A kid-centered marriage. When the kids move out, what's left to hold you together? Nothing. So maybe, maybe we can raise great kids without having a kid-centered marriage. And maybe that's, maybe that's the ideal. So if it's not kids, if it's not something external then maybe it's something internal. Maybe it's something that actually we have at the center of our lives. We decide this is the most important thing, and this is what's going to hold our marriage together. Sometimes that most important thing is me. I've just decided I'm in this to get really what I want out of it. This is the person that I think is going to make me the happiest right now, right? Maybe you start out that way, and maybe, you know, through the dating and the engagement process, that is the person that makes you the happiest, and you get married. And maybe for the first couple years, it's still the person that makes you the happiest. And then maybe one day, you wake up, and you look over, and you're like, not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. I don't know that I'm going to be happy with this person forever, because I have, I have made everything about what this person can do for me. I'm not getting everything I want out of this relationship anymore. I'm not getting everything I feel like I need. And, and a me-centered approach, it's, it's based on some needs that another person just can't fill for you. Sometimes we have a you-centered approach. And maybe you've seen this where, where someone looks at another human being and says, that person is just the greatest thing that's ever, I mean, they fell straight from heaven right into my, you know, living room. Like, 
they're just, they're, 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 all, they're never going to let me down. They're awesome. This person is my everything. Have you ever said, she is my world. He is my universe. Those are some scary things to be coming out of our mouths about human beings. <laughs> because we know human beings, right? Human beings are, we're pretty human. <laughs> we actually do a lot of very human things, like stupid, sinful things. And, and when we have a very you-centered approach and say, man, I, I'm, I'm cashing all my chips in on this person being everything I need them to be forever, what happens when it turns out they're not everything you need them to be every day forever? I mean, we try that. And we put this me-centered. Oftentimes, you'll find a me-centered and a you-centered person coming together. You know, somebody that says, this is really all about me, and the other person is willing to agree. Yeah, this is really all about you. <laughs> And they come together. And then what happens when some negative things happen? When, when that first failure, that first sin, or that first really trying hardship comes upon you and, and you experience some kind of trauma? I mean, there's just, there's not enough there to hold it together because me and you are flawed. We're broken, we're weak, and we're gonna screw up. What are the other options? Let's see. We can have something else in the center of our lives. How about a shiny rock? What, a shiny rock is Jesus' center. And the rock is, you know who the rock is. Who's the rock? Not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Jesus, right? What, what if you have Jesus at the center of your life before you ever get married, before you ever even start dating? Young people, listen up. Before you ever even start dating, if you have Jesus at the center, if you've just decided, you've made the choice, he's got control of everything. He, he is my everything. He is my universe. And we cash all our chips in on Jesus. Is he ever going to let you down? No, never. And, and what if you meet somebody who also has Jesus at the center? And that person has given him their everything. He said, you're, you're my world. You're my universe. You, Jesus, you get to decide. You get to decide who I am, how I'm going to live, how I'm going to treat people. This is all up to you, Jesus. What if those two people who both have Jesus at the center come together? These shiny rocks are actually, you probably figured it out, they're magnets. And that Jesus-centeredness is what draws these two people together, and it's actually what holds them together. That Jesus-centeredness that they had before they came together holds them together. I think that is kind of what we're looking for, right? Please don't fall, just stay, okay. When Paul t tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he is telling them, that the way that love, what love should look like in your marriage is the way that Jesus loves. Jesus' definition of love is what holds your marriage together. So we have a lot of different definitions of love. We talked about this a lot last week. We have definitions of love that are very conditional. I'll love you as long as you love me. As long as you don't hurt me. As long as you... Stay faithful. I'll love you as long as you meet my expectations. But what does Jesus' love look like? He looked at the church full of broken, flawed people like you and me and said, I'm just going to love you. And I know that you're going to mess up. I know that you're not going to meet my expectations. And yet I'm going to love you and I'm going to prove it by going to the cross and dying for you. This is the definition of love we talked about last week. I will do... What's best for you, as God defines best, even if it costs me. 
I will do what's best for you as God defines best, even if it costs me. Isn't that exactly the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated to us? He did what was best for us by dealing with our greatest issue in life, our sin, and it cost him greatly. The cost did not stop him from doing what was best for us. What if that kind of love was the center of your relationship? What if that's how you define love in your marriage, in your dating? Would that change things? I think what it does is it helps us keep Jesus at the center and and that Jesus-centered marriage draws us together. I am convinced that Jesus-centered marriages thrive. When both people have Jesus at the center, you're not just surviving. You're not just making it. You are thriving. You're being fruitful and productive. You're bringing joy and peace to each other and to the people around you. You're passing down joy and peace and purpose to your children and your grandchildren. That's what a Jesus-centered marriage does. And so how do you have a Jesus-centered marriage? It starts with Jesus-centered individuals. Are you a Jesus-centered person? Are you? Often, what we want to look at when we're critiquing, analyzing our relationships is the other person. Well, you know, if she would just, and if he would quit, and if she would just give me a little more respect, and like, I'd do things, you know, I'd do things to help, and she never notices. If he would just sit down and listen, stop trying to solve my problems, just listen for a second. Like, if he would, if she would, what we need to start with instead, now maybe some of that conversation needs to happen, but what we need to start with is, is Jesus in charge of me? Is Jesus in charge? Am I willing to love her? Am I willing to love him like Jesus loves me? Am I willing to look at her and say, I'm going to do what's best for you, even if that means just sitting on the couch and looking into your eyes for half an hour? because you need some quality time. I'm willing to do what's best for him, even if that means praising him for little things that he shouldn't be praised for. I mean, who needs praise for loading the dishwasher? Just do it, you know? But I'm willing to praise him if that's what he needs. That's what love looks like, even if it costs me. Even if it costs me a little time, even if it costs me a little dignity, even if it costs me a little money, even if it costs me a lot. Am I Jesus-centered? Am I willing to love like Christ has got to be the first question when we're analyzing our marriage, when we're talking about our our issues. I I do want to say a word to those who who may be married to someone who's not a believer, not a follower of Christ. Paul addresses this in his letters as well. And his encouragement is, just be faithful. Be faithful. Continue to love like Christ loves. And let's hope. Let's pray. Let's pray that someday your spouse will turn to Jesus. But just be faithful. God God will bless the faithful one. And so if that's where you're at, I just want to encourage you. Be faithful, love like Jesus, and trust that God blesses those who are faithful. But if you're both Christ followers, if you've both made a decision to to be a Jesus-centered person, then when we have struggles in our marriage, we need to be able to ask these questions. Am I Am I living a Jesus-centered life? Am I demonstrating a Jesus-centered love? A love that says, I'm going to love you even when you don't meet my expectations. I'm going to love you even when you let me down. I'm going to love you even when you do that thing that we've talked about 10 times and you said you wouldn't do again, and you do it again. I'm going to love you. 
I'm going to act. I'm going to do what's best for you as God defines best, even when it costs me. And that's, that's the kind of marriages that we hope to see and to nourish and contribute to here at Cicero Christian Church. We want to see thriving marriages. We want to see marriages that are a blessing to each person and to their, the, everyone around them, their children, their grandchildren, their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, extended family, in-laws. We want to see marriages that are, are thriving and producing fruit. Isn't that what you want? So how do we do that as a church family? Well, I think one thing that we can do is, is really keep the focus on Jesus-centeredness. Now, not all marriage issues can be solved by just throwing those words out there. Sometimes it takes some counseling. Sometimes people need to go and, and sit down with a professional that can talk them through. But we can at least start by encouraging people to be Jesus-centered. And one of the ways that we're going to do that here at Cicero Christian Church is through marriage mentoring. We'll be starting a marriage mentoring ministry here this spring. Uh, we already started doing some training for marriage mentors. We sat down with three, uh, my wife and I sat down with three other couples yesterday and began to do marriage mentor training so that we can have people who are equipped and ready to just sit down with other couples and say, let's talk about what it looks like to have a Jesus-centered marriage. These are not people who have perfect marriages because I haven't found those yet. These are just people who are, are, have a marriage that just looks like it's thriving and producing good fruit. And those people have opportunity to sit down with others and talk about what Jesus-centered marriage looks like. So we're going to be offering resources and, you know, assessments and a lot of different kind of things that you can do as a couple. But I want you to know that everyone can contribute to this. So even if you're not a marriage mentor, even if you're not even married, you can contribute to building Jesus-centered marriages in our church family by being Jesus-centered yourself, by modeling the kind of love that Christ shows to us, but then by stepping in and I know, sometimes you're like, they don't, want, they don't want me stepping into their marriage. I'm not saying that you go and say, hey, let me give you some advice as a single person. <laughs> that may be, not be the approach. But to say, hey, let's, let's, I want your marriage to thrive. How can I pray for your marriage? Have you ever asked somebody that? Well, that's, a great, that's a great question. I would love for somebody to come to me and say, hey, can I pray for your marriage? I'd be like, yeah, please, because it's hard. And I want to have a Jesus-centered marriage. And sometimes... I'm not a Jesus-centered person. We had a discussion a couple weeks ago about remodeling our office and putting a new desk in, and I thought she said one thing, and she said something totally different, and I didn't like being told that I was doing it wrong, and so this defensiveness was kind of welling up in me, and it was a little Adam-centered for a moment, but she kept, she kept her cool. She stayed Jesus-centered, and we, we got through it, and we still love each other. Like, it's, it's not a perfect thing, but when I'm weak, she's strong. When she's weak, I'm strong. And we work together and we produce something that is, we hope is a blessing to our children and to their children and to their children and to the people around us. And, and you can contribute to that by just saying, hey, can I pray for your marriage? Is there something I can pray for for you guys? I, you know what I would like to do? I'd like to pray that you guys have a Jesus-centered marriage. That's what I'd like to do. Man, what, those words would just be super encouraging. And that prayer can actually change things. So that's, that's what I want to encourage you guys with. Just be on your toes because we're going to continue talking about this for months because it's, it's such an issue. I'm telling you, I can't describe the heartbreak that I've experienced just with friends coming to me over and over saying, we're struggling. I don't know if we're going to make it. And when, when it gets to a crisis point like that, there's just not a whole lot I can do. 
But what if we could take some preventative steps? What if we could step in before things get bad and just help people be Jesus-centered in their relationships? Maybe we could see a change. Are you with me? All right. Would you go ahead and stand? We're going to close with a prayer and a song. And um, I just want to encourage you as, as, we, as we pray this morning, just to lift up marriages of people that you care about. If you're married, uh, start with yours. <laughs> pray for your marriage. Ask God to step into your marriage and help you both be Jesus-centered. Help you to love each other the way that Christ loves you, the way that he modeled love. Pray for your marriage. And then pray for the marriages of the people around you. Maybe you don't even know the names of the people nearby. But if you do, pray for them by name. If you don't know their names, just ask God to bless the people around you with healthy marriages, thriving marriages, Jesus-centered marriages. Pray for your loved ones, maybe that aren't here. Pray for marriages of people that don't know Christ, that that Christ would, would be invited in to that relationship. Would you join me as we just pray? for marriages this morning. Father, thank you so much for creating marriage. It's a beautiful thing, and it's capable of so much joy and good in the world, but it's hard. It's hard because we're, we're flawed, and, and we get selfish, and we don't know what we want sometimes, but you're faithful. You're always faithful. So, Father, I just pray for every person in this room who's married or wants to be married that you would help us to keep Christ at the center, to let his definition of love drive our choices and our actions. And God, I pray that we would be a church family full of thriving marriages that are a blessing to the people around us, to our community. We believe that you can make that happen. And we just ask you to lead us by your spirit into thriving marriages as a church. In Christ's name, amen.